Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Pesachim, daf Sadi Hey, page 95. We have two great missions here, and I'm going to start off with the first one, which really is going to get down to what is the difference between Pesach Rishon and Pesach Sheni. Ma bein Pesach Rishon l'Sheni? Ha Rishon asur b'bali rat b'bali So what's the difference between Pesach Rishon and Pesach Sheni? The first Pesach, we have these prohibitions of it should not be seen and it should not be found, right? Things that we discussed earlier in our study of Masach Pesachim, that chametz itself can't be seen or can't be found in the house at all, right? That we have to get rid of all chametz that's in the home or in our possession, right? Hasheni chametz umatza imo But during the second Pesach, right, he's actually allowed to have chametz and matza together in the home itself which really is pretty amazing if you think about it. Right? The first Pesach, you must recite halal while you're actually eating the Korban Pesach itself. But the second Korban Pesach, one does not need to actually say halal um, uh, while you're actually eating it. And the Gemara, you know, actually on the next Amud, on Amud Bet, explains where exactly they get to that. And Anne, I know you're going to talk about that a little bit more. Now that they talked about what it is that differs between the two of them, then the Gemara is going to talk about exactly how they're the same. Both of them require halal as they're prepared. So in other words, as the sacrifice is being done, right? They're shechting and that, you know, all of that, that's when you have to say halal, right? They both have to be eaten roasted. Al matzah umorim, right? They both have to be eaten with matzah amara. V'dochin at the Shabbat, and they both override the Shabbat itself. So structurally, I find it interesting that the Mishnah begins with what's different, right? If I think I was writing the Mishnah, I think I would have started with what's the same, and then I would have gone to what's different. So that's it. it that's an interesting structural piece. The Gemara then basically picks up, and I'm not going to read the Gemara, but really what the Gemara does is it's going to go through a whole train of thought to basically figure out how, based on the psukim, surrounding Pesach Rishon and surrounding Pesach Sheni, how do we arrive at this list? In other words, how do we arrive at what are the things that we're going to say are different between Pesach Rishon and Sheni? And what are we going to say are the things that are similar between Pesach Rishon and Sheni? And the basic conclusion that they come to is, right, that anything that is you know, things that are sort of intrinsic to the korban itself, those are the things that we're going to maintain have to be the same, right? And again, I think halal is the interesting one, right? Why is it that when you eat it, you don't have to? And Anne, I know you're going to talk about that piece, right? But the thing of, you know, getting rid of all your chamids, that's not what you need to do. And I think what this really teaches us is, is that the idea of Pesach Sheni, you know, uh, is that there's really two parts to the holiday of Pesach, right? There's the part of the holiday of Pesach, which is celebrating over that period of a week where we don't have chametz in our home. And then there's a second piece, which is that the first night of Pesach, we, you know, honor it or we begin the holiday by bringing this korban Pesach. And that really what Pesach Shani is doing is it's not making up the holiday, the Chag of Pesach itself, but rather it's saying that this bringing of this korban uh, that's what we're going to allow you to sort of uh, have another opportunity to do. I know we spoke a couple of days earlier, you know, what exactly is the point of it? Is it a makeup? Is it a separate chag? But this Mishnah really highlights for me, you know, again, that there's sort of two pieces 
to what we do in Nisan. There's the bringing of the Korban Pesach, and that's what Pesach Sheni is really related to. And then there's the holiday of Pesach itself over the seven days, and that's something that's totally different. So I want to springboard off of this. I mean, the Gemara is doing that, right? Like we've got the Mishnah, and now then the Gemara has, takes a certain piece of it and develops it further. I want to focus, as you've just said, on the Hallel, but part of the reason I think that it <clears throat> makes sense to do so, besides the fact that the Gemara does so, um, is that this introduces a new dimension, I would say, to the Korban Pesach than anything we've seen thus far. So far, we've talked about intent, and we've talked about all of the blood and guts of it, and we've talked about for whom, you know, who participates and so on. And these are what I would call, you know, the, the nitty-gritty of the halachot. This is the basis of how do you do the Korban Pesach? How do you shecht it? Including Pesach Sheni, right? All of these are the details of making sure that you are doing your Korban Pesach as prescribed. What happens then in this discussion of halal is it's discussed in the same kind of way of, you know, this is when you must recite, this is when you don't have to. It's the same kind of halachic stricture. But when you pause and think about what is halal, namely songs of praise, right? These are the passages from Sefer Tilim that are strung together to make halal. And first of all, it attests to the fact that halal as a, as a composition, so to speak, was already you know, well-known. There's a thing called Hallel. You know, even, I don't know if it had any difference. I have no reason to think that it's any different from what we have today. But even if it were, there's still something that was known as the accompanying part of this Korban. And the idea that this is an, in- an integral part of the mitzvah, I think just opens it up to a completely different experience than we might have thought about initially. Because what we're talking about here is singing songs of praise. And that kind of intent kind of moves the person, the the actor, the person doing the mitzvah outside of simply the one performing a mitzvah in a, in a serious, intentional kind of way to the potential, I think, uh, I hope this is not too cheesy, but for the potential for joy. And when we're talking about the simcha of, of Pesach, right, the idea that we are commemorating the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, and the idea that this korban, this blood and guts, is exactly that. Well, when we sing Hallel, we imbue it with so much more than simply the act of shkita and eating and who can participate. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the text. Harishon, again, this is coming off of the Mishnah. Harishon ta'un Hallel ba'achilato. The Mishnah says that the Pesach um, Rishon, you have to say Hallel at the time of the eating of the Korban. Where do we get this from? There's a verse, there's a biblical verse in Isaiah, the book of Yeshayahu, Perak Lam in chapter 30. The, you will have a song on that night at the time that the holiday is sanctified. The night that is sanctified for the holiday, that's when you have to sing. And if the night itself were not sanctified to be a holiday in that way, then you would not be required to have halal. And the implication is that Pesach Sheni, right? Pesach Sheni is, the focus of Pesach Sheni is that you bring the carbon Pesach. It's not that you have a whole replica of the Seder night and everything like that. 
So without transform, without the first night of Pesach Sheni, right? The what is it? I guess it's the night of the fifteenth of Iyar. Is it's just a night, you know? Until you get up in the morning, and then you go bring your korban Pesach that you owe, right? Um, so, so without that special night beforehand, you don't have to sing Hallel in the at the time of the eating either. That's the claim here. That that's where you get it from from this verse in Yeshayahu. The Mishnah says, well, both of them require that you would have Hallel sung in the time or recited at the time of the preparation of the Korban Pesach by Tama. What's the rationale for that? The Gemara says, what's the reason that we would have Hallel at the time of preparation? If you want, we say, so again, it says, we've got this verse. Where's the pasuk? The same verse from before, right? That you've got Lila, that when you say the Lila is when your festival is sanctified, the implication then is that we're not talking about the, um, we're only excluding the laws that happen in the night, but the Korban Pesach is prepared in the day. So then presumably you would need to have your Halal during that day. Um, and then the Gemara here says, if you want to say, if you want to say, and this is a you know it's a rhetorical question that makes a very strong statement. I think it says, "Is it possible? Would you ever say that Bnei Yisrael would shech their Pesach? They would slaughter the korban Pesach and they would take their lulav." Now, obviously, that's a different holiday, right? That's Sukkot. We're not worrying about that for the Pesach, but the idea is that Bnei Yisrael are involved in mitzvot. How can you suggest that they would not say Hallel? Is it conceivable that they would not be reciting, meaning the point being, it is inconceivable that they would not be saying halal at the time that they're doing these mitzvot. You don't need to go find psukim to back yourself up and say that there's a whole rationale and a requirement because obviously they are joyous. So they will sing the praises of God in the mitzvot. I, I just as think this do. gives us an insight as to like, what is the actual purpose of saying the halal itself? Um, and you know, the fact that they're sort of making the distinction of praising God and reciting the hollow when you're actually bringing the korban itself versus doing the actual act of eating, you know, this to me at least brings, closes a little bit of the question that kept coming up. You know, all these discussions of like, could you shech the korban for somebody or like sort of like make someone attached to a group, even though they're, you know, they're traveling and they wouldn't be able to eat it or something happens later on and they're not a part of it. And so I think this really emphasizes that the process of bringing the korban is almost in a way more important than the actual eating of the korban itself. Even though the Gemara keeps repeating, it's meant to be eaten, it's meant to be eaten, and therefore we make all these special dispensations about the korban Pesach itself, right? The fact that it can be brought when the community is tame together and things like that. But the process of bringing it is also very important. And I think it's really emphasized by this passage here. I wonder, and this is just pure speculation, I wonder what kind of musical accompaniment was allowed at the time of the asiatan, at the doing, the, the process of shechting the Korban Pesach. In the eating of it, it's already yantif, right? It's it's the holiday itself and the strictures of what was done in the Beit HaMikdash, you know, come into play. But before that, it's Arab Pesach. I'm just curious, or, you know, maybe Pesach Sheni, it's a, still a... a 
regular day. So I feel I'm like wondering whether sure there was, was musical but, accompaniment you know, to this. We'll, we'll never hall. know. You know, we won't know for sure, at least for now. Um, I'm going to move on now to the second uh, Mishnah here, um, which now is again going to get back to the topic of what happens when we bring the Korban Pesach when the majority of the community was Tame. Um, and, um, and when normally a Tame person cannot actually enter the temple, right? You can't actually go into the Beit Tamigash into the courtyard um, or do any of the service there or eat any of the meat. Um, and so now the mission is going to give us an interesting uh, piece to this. Again, this mission feels a little bit out of order, but, um, you know, but it's going to, but it brings the following halacha. Ha-Pesach Shabbat B'Tuma. So if you have a Pesach that was brought in a state of Tuma, lo yechlu mimenu zavin v'zavot nidot v'yoldot, right? The people who are Tame from other means, we're not talking about Tumat Hamid, right? Which is the one within which the whole community, if the majority of the community is Tame that way, that Korban can be brought, right? But but people who are Tame because they're a Zav, you know, a man or a woman who's a Zav, a woman who's a Nidra, a woman who just given birth, right? They should actually, uh, they're not actually allowed to eat this. They're not actually allowed to eat this type of Korban Pesach. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is the halacha here. But if they do eat it, okay, they are exempt from, um, from curry, right? So in other words, the idea is that you can get, according to the Pasuk in Vayikra, um, in chapter 7, verse 20 and 21, it talks about that if a person whose tummy eats a korban, they actually can get curry, right? The same punishment that you would get if you don't bring um, the Korban Pesach. Um, and, but the distinction that's going to be made is, is that that's for a Korban whose intention was to be eaten by somebody who was Tahor. But since here, this was a Korban that was going to be eaten by a person who was Tameh, any of these other categories of Tuma, if they were to eat it, they would not actually get curry. But Rabbi Leezer Proter, and Rabbi Eliezer says they even are exempt from getting curries if they even enter the temple in their state of Tuma, right? So this is another halacha here that you're not allowed to enter the Beit HaMikdash itself when you are Tameh. And if you do, you can get curried for that. And that's mentioned in Bamidbar, chapter 19, verse 13. And so Rabbi Eliezer here says that even that wouldn't apply to a Pesach that's bring in the state of Tuma. Um, and I think the distinction here is between these categories of Tuma, of the, the Zavim, the Nida, and the woman who's, who hasn't given birth is, you know, these are sort of Tuma that comes about because of a person's body, right? Something happens, there's a change in their body, and they become Tame, as opposed to the person who's Tuma made, right? They become Tame because of contact with another body. And so it's interesting also to see this distinction. It's not spelled out entirely here in this Mishnah between these different categories uh, of, uh, you know, of, um, uh, of Tuma. And I think that gets back to, you remember, Rav had that solution that if you had that it was exactly half and half that was Tumat made or not Tumat made, you would take one person and make them Tumat by touching a Sheretz, right? And so now this makes a lot of sense because the idea is to tip it over by a tummy that sort of the body acquires, but not a tumor that comes sort of like from the body itself. The implications here, I think, is, um, well, it brings us back to the Korban Pesach and the, and the, and the tumor here. I don't have anything exciting to say. 
honestly. Like, I feel like yes, the Gemara does the it, Gemara for, does it and, for us. You know, what they're, again, this mission feels super out of order to me. Um, but, um, you know, then they get into sort of this interesting conversation later on, which I'm just going to we'll wrap up with this, which is then Rav Yosef asks, okay, so, you know, we're talking about this, or this thing about what Rabbi Eliezer says, okay, that's like sort of about entering the temple itself, but we're really just talking about the courtyard. But what happens to a person who goes into like the actual Heichal, right? So remember like the, the, there's, it's the sanctuary, right? There's really divided into different areas. There's the, the, the Olam, the Heichal and the Kodesh Kedashim. And so the question is, is like, okay, the Heichal sort of has, you know, this very high, it, it has a higher level of Kedusha. So when we say that a Tame person enters this place, is it, is this true of sort of all parts of the Beit HaMikdash itself, or does it only apply to the place where most people would have gone altogether? Um, and ultimately, the Gemara comes to the conclusion that, yes, even the Heichal, you would sort of be off the hook for any punishment that you would get for that, because once we're allowing, like, some Tuma in, we're going to allow, you know, it, it's going to, once we're going to allow Tuma into one part of the area, then sort of, not that we're going to allow it, but it doesn't have the same implications if that Tuma ends up in another part of the temple complex. Right. And for this, I will just comment that I think that um, it is worth, you know, we should, I want to encourage all of our co-learners to go find yourself a picture of the Heichal, right, of the sanctuary, of the layout, basically, the basic layout of the Beit HaMikdash that shows where you've got the Azara, where you've got the, courtyard for the Kohanim, where you've got the Hechal itself and the Kodesh Kodeshim, etc., the Ezrat Nashim, so that, you know, as much as we can talk about it, this is the kind of thing that it is much easier if you have a picture in front of you. And my only hesitation, of course, of, you know, copying out a picture that I can look at right now is copyright issues once we start publishing. So, but if you Google, you know, there's many, many opportunities to find such a thing. Maybe we'll add some links. Uh, for yeah, this, just this purpose, to, you know, just well, to get out of the lay of the land. For the day, rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.